Well, thanks, Fope, for joining us on the show today. Um, as an introduction, could you please let people know what you currently do as your job and maybe a bit of your career trajectory up to, up to date? Yeah, sure. So, um, hi, thank you for having me on the show. Um, happy to be on the show today. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Pope. I, um, I work as, a, as an investment professional in, um, at a firm called Helios Investment Partners. It's a private equity fund. Um, and we invest um, all across Africa, in businesses all across Africa. Um, I spend most of my time actually on investments in the financial services and fintech space, and typically anything that is sort of earlier stage um, investments um, that is tech enabled across all the other different sectors. Um, I've been doing that for six years now, and prior to that, I worked in investment banking and then did a couple of things in between. Went to business school, did a couple of internships in consulting and, and one internship at Jumia, actually. Um, and yeah, I landed in, in PE. Fantastic. Well, coming at it from the outside looking in, a lot of people don't even know what private equity is per se. You know, it's a bit vague. Some people confuse it for venture capital as well. From your perspective, how would you define sort of private equity for the layman? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think the lines are getting very blurred between PE and VC these days. <laughs> um, and then I think you'll see some investments that private equity funds do that look like venture capital investments. But um, I think the traditionally, I would say private equity has been sort of later stage investments into companies that are more mature. Um, and, and even within PE, you have different sort of different types of investment. So you had growth equity, which, you know, yes, it is mature. It is sort of earlier stage, but not completely like, it's not like a series A or series B investment as you'd have in venture capital. Um, and then, you know, to the other end, which is like a sort of leveraged buyout and large type of transaction. Um, I think VC is, and, and I think the, the key thing is within the private equity model, um, I, I think you'll find that most funds will have very concentrated portfolios. Um, so within any fund that they have, maybe they'll have anything between 10 to sort of 20 investments. Um, so large ticket sizes, a lot of work goes around each of the different companies. And I think the mindset is for each investment you make as a P fund, um, you know, you, you are, you, you're not taking, you're not taking any risk that that investment is going to go to a zero, which in, in VC you can sort of do. And I'll come to have, you know, sort of the traditional VC model works. And I think with each investment in P fund, you are sort of focused on growing each of your investments and making sure actually that you create value out of them. Within the VC model, I think there's a bit more, um, there's definitely more risk appetite and it's actually a, a game of diversification. And so most VC funds will do anything from sort of 30 to 50 deals in one fund. And the idea is, you know, the idea is that one or two of those investments will do really, really well. You know, you probably have another five or 10 which do okay. Um, and then the rest actually may just not return anything. But that sort of mindset is inherent in how VCs think about building their portfolios. Um, and I don't, I don't think you really, I think the, the P model is slightly different in terms of the risk appetite and diversification that you, you, you do. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I, uh, I have a lot of people that tell me that, yeah, they're not really sure what the, the difference is between the two and they get a bit blurred. So it's great that you're able to delineate those two in those terms. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, um, 
impetus to put money into a company, to take equity or, or share in that company. What happens from that point onwards? Because, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, are you just giving them money and then giving them advice and then they sort of, you know, crack on with what they're doing? Or is it sort of a change or transformation, complete, you know, turnaround of the, of the company because it's been failing? But what happens after the money has been invested? And mm. If you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I think um, the, the way to think about it, if you think of how do, how do you even go about looking for the right type of deal and then deciding to invest, right? And I think as a, you know, as a private equity investor, you start out with like a thesis, either about a sector or a space or, you know, an emerging sector, you, you start out with a thesis around that. And then ultimately, you you go look for companies that fit within that that thesis. Now, every company that you look at is obviously um, individual in the you know the management team, um, the way they're approaching the problem. And so, I think if you start out with you know as an example, let's say um, you know financial inclusion. So you say, look, financial inclusion is a big thing. Um, it's going to be there are a lot of government policies in Africa, for example, that will drive financial inclusion. Um, and so you could go look for an investment that actually it's a company that is facilitating financial inclusion. Um, so that's your starting point. Now, if your idea is that, well, actually, you know, this is something that is going to accelerate in the next five years, then what you want to do with the business, depending on how big and how successful they are already in their path, is to make sure that they're part of that acceleration, right, of financial inclusion and make sure they can grow. And so when you go back to that thesis of what you started out with, it, you then ask yourself the question, when you invest in the company, what are the things that they need to do to capitalize on this opportunity and make sure actually that, you know, they are part of the growth in financial, you know, if you're saying, look, they're, they're, they're like 30% of individuals are financially included today, you expect to see that grow to 50% in the next 10 years. Um, what are the different things that those individuals are going to need access to? It's going to be bank accounts, mobile wallets, cards, ability to pay for certain transactions. And so the company you're invested in, they may be doing one of those things. Um, I think the question then you'll be asking yourself is how can we broaden that more um, for, for individuals? And so that when you start with that question, it ends up leading to lots of different, you know, answers or initiatives that you could do. And that's something we call for us, a value creation plan. Um, and that would mean what is sort of the commercial strategy to go after these new opportunities? Following on from that, do you have the right organization and the people to go after those opportunities? And I think that, that you do some work around that. Um, do you have the right technology? Do you have, even within your business, do you need to be looking at some other acquisitions to ensure that actually you can offer a broader suite of products for the target market that you've been after. So I think all of it boils down to what is your thesis about the company? How do you think they can achieve um, the goal that you think that that business sh should achieve and that you thought about when you were investing in the company? And how do you create the right organizations and the structure to enable them to do that? Um, and that's what we call value creation. I think different funds have different ways of approaching it. Um, some funds will, you know, um, will let management agree if a, a, a value creation plan up front, let management run with it. Um, we um, at Helios have a, you know, a value creation group, um, which, you know, they're kind of like internal consultants who work with all of the CEOs of our companies very closely throughout the life of the investment, trying to deliver on the value creation plan. And I think that's important um, because 
you want your businesses that you're invested in to be successful. And so to the extent that we have expertise, either through our networks or experience investing in other companies that can enable those businesses grow, we obviously try and bring that um, to, the, to the fore so that those companies can leverage that expertise to grow. Yeah, no, those, those are excellent points. I'm just thinking of the fact that you get involved in assessing technology, management, all these different things. Uh, that, that sounds very, um, I don't want to say hands-on, but you know, you're getting into mm. things beyond just a, a, a financial statement, right? You're mm-hmm. assessing a company on multiple different levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, how involved do you have to get in terms of the weeds of things? And the reason why I ask that is because, you know, each company is very different. Yeah, they might be in the financial space, but you mentioned you might have to bring in extra consultants and things like mm-hmm. that to really deep dive into it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is it a, a general skill set that you have that you apply to every company that you look at? Or is it a case that with each and every company, you're bringing in a lot of experts to really yeah. deep dive to make that assessment? Because I can imagine if I had to assess 15 different companies, they're all so different. I don't know if my general framework can apply to each of them. Yeah. Yeah, so look, I think I think there is the I think the first step is a general framework. You know, it's like, what does the company do and what problem are they trying to solve? And do they seem to have something that works to solve it, right? And that that is the sort of very general framework. And then I think what you then need to do is because like I said, each company has a different way of solving something. It could be their technology, it could be they've developed a great sort of sales and marketing machine that just really works and it's better than anyone else and they're able to acquire customers. It could be, you know, they've built um, the biggest network um, for, let's say in payments, they've built the biggest network. And obviously with networks, you know, it's always two-sided. So the bigger the network, the more people want to join that network. So, so there are lots of different things. You need to figure out, okay, what are some of the sort of key um, levers that the company has and uses to address the problem that they address. And I think in each of those, you're right, your general framework would only take you so far. And so what we typically do is we will have expert firms who will work with us during diligence. And sometimes after diligence, when you're thinking about evaluation plan, to come to one assess actually if it's technology, for example, how great is the technology, how good is the technology team, how good is their development process. Um, do they have a way of actually assessing the market and improving and developing their technology as they should? So you ask yourself those sorts of questions. And I think during diligence, often you'll find areas where they could improve. That's not because we came up with it. That's because maybe the experts actually, you know, have seen, because these experts have done lots and lots of technology type deals, they can give you um, some sense actually of, you know, what the company is doing well, what they could do better. And then you build that into your valuation plan. So I think it's a mix of, of your general knowledge. I think it's very important to know where your general knowledge ends and where you need an expert um, and then bringing in the expert. And, and you know, the, the key is to figure out what are the two or three critical things about this company that if it breaks, you just, you know, you're just not going to see growth because there could be lots of different things you could get an expert on. You could get an expert on Lean Six Sigma. You could get an expert on operational efficiency on the sales team. But I think you need to, with each opportunity, you just have to think through, okay, what is most important here? And how can I get to the bottom of whether this works well and whether it's, it's scalable enough for the future? Um, and, and that's where you bring experts in. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I can imagine when a private equity firm is investing, you know, you have these discussions with the founders and owners and ways of improving the business, but it sounds like there could be room for friction there as well. It's like, oh, who are these guys coming in to, you know, take my baby or, oh, I don't need your money or all that kind of stuff. What are the two or three common sort of um, friction points you see between private equity investors and founders? And how do you go about solving them or alleviating those things? Do you create yeah. a framework or what do you do? Well, I think it varies. So it, 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 it's very dependent on the type of investment that you do. So, it, you know, range of, if you just break them into two big categories, you're like, you, you can be a minority shareholder where, you know, um, you have 10 to 20% um, stake in the company. So you don't control the company and you could have a controlling stake where you have over 50% or actually you could outrightly own the company and have you know, something like 90%. So I think the dynamics for the founders obviously changes depending on what kind of equity ownership you have. What I would say is, you know, where the friction points come is very early on, even just on valuation. Um, because if you're a founder, you have a very healthy view of what your business is worth. And as an investor, and that's even for a PE or VC investor, there's always going to be some kind of conversation and discussion around that. And oftentimes that could be, you know, what takes the longest time to sort of resolve before you even start discussing any other part of the transaction. So I think that's one. I think the second part is actually who has control of what, right? So there are certain things that would be either board, board matters or shareholder matters, which requires the shareholders to approve in their affirmative for the company to be able to do certain actions and the same thing with the board. And typically you can, you can have you know, lots of conversations around, you know, what should come to the board? What can management do without coming to the board? What should the shareholders have a right to, um, to approve or not? Um, and, I, and I think that speaks to actually control, right? And that could be, if you're obviously a, an entrepreneur, you'll be running your business, making you, all the, all the buck has always stopped with you. You're in a very different scenario now where, you have to speak to these investors who have just come into your business and they're telling you what to do. So I think there's a, usually you have a healthy conversation around that. Um, and I think as investors where you want to find balances, look, what are the things that you really care about? Right. And what, and what do you, you know, you, you may not necessarily want to make a decision on every technological change or app that the company is using, for example, uh, but you want to know, for example, if the company is going to spend, I don't know, $30 million on a new technology platform, well, actually, you, you want to know about that. Um, and so you find, again, it comes back to what is important to you, what, what, do you, what do you need to feel comfortable with in terms of the business preserving value, but also achieving growth. And, and you, you, know, you, you figure out those things and you bring that into what your board matters and what the shareholder matters. Are. So those are the sort of two things. And I think it's very important to get that right up front um, because then it determines how the relationship with the founder goes, right? So once you know between yourselves, here are the things that I want to have a say on, you have that fight at the beginning, right? And once you're then invested, it's, it's clear for both parties, you know, who needs to approve what. And so you're not having that fight as an ongoing fight. You just do it once at the start and, you know, hopefully it's it sort of, continues to work out that way <laughs> so more of the story you should find once up front and then it'll make your life easier <laughs> yeah it, it will i think so um and we 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 typically say that you know there's some 
even when you're negotiating um, transaction documents, I think one of the things we always say is, okay, we know this particular point is going to be a big fight. Let's just, let's bring it up up front. Like, let's not even wait. Let's just bring it up up front. Um, I think I think it's important. It, it, it helps for openness as well with the other side. Um, they know what you care about and you know what they care about as well. And you can sort of, um, you know, figure out the way to make it work for both parties. You must be an expert negotiator then, because I'm sure you've gone into some very <laughs> intense conversations and used some negotiation tactics. But um, yeah, yeah no, that, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I think you, you uh, th there's a big part of, of doing deals that is just negotiation, whether, yeah, VC fund, P fund. Actually, even if you're doing commercial deals, it's just, you just, you know, understanding what both sides want and being able to, to find a middle ground that works um, is important. And I think in, in, the, in the business of investing as well, there's a very big part of it that is a people part, right? Um, I think you need to be someone that the entrepreneurs or the managers trust. And I think you also want to be able to trust them as well. Um, I think back to your point around being hands-on, you don't want to be waking up every day and helping to resolve problems all the time. You want to feel like even when there are changes in the market that you've backed the management team that know what to do um, and know how to navigate those challenges. So I think trust is also a big part um, and, and ensuring that you build that trust upfront actually is also quite helpful. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And it is a very trust oriented uh, industry. One of my, I don't want to say idols, that's too strong a word, but someone I look up to as the founder of Vista Equity Partners, um, Robert Smith, and, you know, he does a lot of good work in making sure that the perception of private equity is positive, right? So he does, you know, philanthropic things and, you know, he talks about the industry in, in a lot of good lights and I'm sure you guys do as well. But there's another side of it, which is, you know, you, you hear stories in the Financial Times or other places whereby they talk about how PE firms are quick to, to fire or downsize or liquidate assets and sort of lever up the company and lever meaning, I mean, for people that are new to the show or just getting into it, sort of putting on a lot of debt and then growing at all costs and then selling it, and, you know, things like that. Is that really the case that, you know, PE firms are quick to fire, just use financial engineering and then get out of the firm within five years? Or is it different? I mean, that because that's a perception challenge there, yeah. or maybe it's the reality. I don't know. So I think, um, I think it varies. So it, it goes back again to what is your thesis about how you'd create value within this firm, right? Um, and, and there are lots of different ways to do it. So if you think about how do you create value, I think one is just organic growth of the company. So a company continues to do well, you're in a space that is growing healthy, you have a great product, you continue to grow. Um, others is you go through, you know, M&A. So you, you're, you know, for example, you could be the leader in an industry um, and the rest of the industry is very fragmented. And actually one of the ways that you create value is to roll up all of the players and create one sort of dominant player that offers like a great service to your, to your customers. So that's one way. I think there's some other ways where if the company is sort of a healthy cash flow business, um, then yeah, there's opportunity to, to invest some equity to grow the business, but you could also put on some debt to help grow the business. And if you have enough, if the business has the cash flows to repay the interest and obviously pay down the debt over time, then that's actually kind of a, um, and, and where you have access to leverage, and I'll come back to that point because I think it's, it varies depending on the markets that you're in, then that's another way to actually um, grow the company because for most companies, the cost of debt is cheaper than the cost of equity anyway. And so for the com com from the company's perspective, 
um, getting debt to grow actually, it, you know, helps actually shore up their balance sheet in some way. Um, but also it's very important to make sure we say that they have a cash flows actually to, to support that sort of leverage. So there are lots of different ways that you think about value creation. I think upfront, you, it's something that you, you, you agree upfront, you, 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 you have a conversation with management around the plan actually, because uh, ultimately the company is going to have to do a lot of the work in speaking with the banks, et cetera, to get the leverage on. Um, so I don't think that the that, that there's a playbook that says you go into a company you lever it up and you fire people it just doesn't exist right it's not like box standard this is what you do i think it really depends now i'm going to speak from the Afri african perspective i think what we found in our experience is um cost of debt is actually really expensive right so i think in developed markets if you take the us for example you could get um sort of for a healthy um you know, a healthy rated company, you could get debt in the sort of low, sing, high single digits um, range. Um, whereas in our markets, I think any company looking for debt, you're talking at least mid-teens to high-teens, right? Wow. Which is really expensive if you think about, that means a company has to be growing actually in excess of that amount to return any equity value to you. Is this so, in dollars or in the local currency? This is in local currency, but it's also still more, it's still, it's still expensive in dollars. And I, I think if you are a local currency company, there's a risk in taking dollar debt, right? Because, you know, there's always the risk of devaluation and depreciation in the currency. So your first point of call is let's look at local currency debt, but that's high teens, like I said. And so I think that idea in our markets is a little bit more challenging. There are banks um, in our experience that you will get, you know, sort of healthy terms with, um, with but it's not as easily accessible as it is in, in developed markets. I think that's one. I think secondly, in our markets, um, I, you know, I come back to the point around it. There's also a very people element to the business, right? Um, and it is important to, you know, like you said, I think you could go in and build a reputation of firing people, et cetera. But I, I do think getting great talent sometimes is difficult. And I think when you get that talent, you know, for us, there's also, a, you know, a view that you want to develop companies, you want companies to develop their own talents and actually have these people rise up and, and grow within the organization. So I do think there's something to be said in helping companies build their own sort of training and development programs for staff over time. And that's something that we have a, internally as part of our valuation team, we have someone who heads up human capital. That's all she does. So she works with all the companies on organizational development, thinking through the right management structure, thinking through actually how they, how they develop the right culture in place. You know, we have some companies that are present all across Africa. So they have offices everywhere. And so the, there's always a question of how do you, how do you ensure that you maintain the culture of the firm in all of the different um, countries where, where the business is operating? And that's some of the work that she does. So I think people is important. So I, 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 don't, I don't know of any African P funds that have gone in and sort of fired people and you know, just done the, what, what has been seen as the standard playbook. Um, I don't think you see what, as much of that in Africa because of the talent shortage, but also this view that actually you do want to develop talents as well. Um, so I, you know, all of that is to say, no, I don't think the sort of fire, lever up company, get out is the, is the, is the process. I think it really, really de de depends on your thesis. And actually in Africa, I would say that 
what we found is the the whole period a little bit longer than the sort of three to five years that you see in u.s markets right so i think the holding period is is probably more like five to seven years um and part of that is you know our markets are evolving they're various you always have various things that you know, it could be a change in regulation, it could be devaluation, that just means that actually you have to work closer with management to overcome the challenges actually to see to see growth. So um, I, I think it's quite different um, when I think of, you know, African markets, which is where I spend most of my time. Yeah, no, those are excellent points. In fact, to the point about a lack of talent, I got a call this week about a chief product officer role at a FinTech in Nigeria. Mm. Um, and that gave me an indication that, wow, okay, they, they, there's definitely a need for some strong talent, especially in the yeah. fintech space where I'm, I, I'm very passionate about. So uh, obviously, I work at QuickBooks and things like that. But uh, something that you mentioned that was that was really interesting was, um, you know, there's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation here. And I wonder, from your perspective, is it the fact that there aren't enough companies uh, for PE firms to invest in? Or is it that there are too many companies and there's not enough sources of capital? And we can speak about it specifically in the African context mm. versus the developed context. Would you say that's the reality or what, what's the misconception there or the actual truth behind it? So it depends, right? Um, and I know I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm answering all of my questions with it depends. <laughs> it is, I think as a, I, I, I want to I make the distinction between PE and, and VC investments because there are a lot of companies that are um, that would be great targets for VC investments. Actually, I think there there are quite a number. There are a lot of you know interesting innovations coming out and interesting things that entrepreneurs are doing that I've seen, I've spoken to. Um, in the later stage and sort of the bigger ticket um, investments, which is where the P investments come in, I actually think that there there are a lot of interesting companies. Like if, you know, the, the, what I always say to people is there's so many products that individuals are using in Africa, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and so there are companies that are building those products and selling those products. And some of them are local companies. And so there are lots of interesting investments. I think the, you know, for us, what we've found is where there's a, you know, in developed markets, I think there's a, there's an understanding in general as to how investments work and how the capital markets work and that being a path to exit. I think there is still some education on the continent around that because some of these businesses are, you know, family owned businesses, entrepreneur businesses that have been like, you know, they've been doing it for years and years and it's kind of for them, some of them, it's a legacy. They want to leave to their children. So, I think there is an education around that. And I think what, what we see is, you know, either businesses that are, um, in, in some cases you have family businesses where actually the, the, the younger generation don't want to run the business. And so the, the, the parents are like, well, we need to do something with it and we want to put it in the hands of someone that we trust and that can run the business and put, protect the brand name. Um, and so I think what that means is and, and take that example, right? It is, it, you know, you could be a guy that you've been speaking with for three years and he's still saying, look, I still, you know, this, let's say it's a biscuit manufacturing business. I still want my children to run it. I still want my children to run it. And then he gets to the point, his children graduate from university and they're very clear that they're not going to run this business. And that's the point where he starts to think, okay, I need to bring in outside capital, right? And so 
it, it would take us, it's, in that case, it would have taken you three years. It would have taken the guy three years to get to that point. When he gets to that point, he's not going to, you know, he may go to the first person that comes to speak with him. But actually, if you've been speaking with him for three years, you're probably the first point of call to say, look, now I want to have a conversation. So I think some of the deals that we see, you have to incubate them. You know, and by incubate, I mean work on those deals um, for maybe a bit longer than you would have here. Um, I don't think they're necessarily, um, you know, people just, lots of businesses come in and say, we want to raise capital because actually I think traditionally, even for these family-run businesses, as an example, there are obviously other types of businesses. Um, there's a, you know, there isn't this culture of getting external capital or even debt or, or an external shareholder. So there's some education there. So I think you just have to, um, there's some incubating that you have to do working with businesses. Um, and then I think even being creative about the types of businesses that you, you invest in. So that I think is what's more important on our, on, on our continent. And I think, look, we, we typically deploy large check sizes. Um, we've been able to do that. We continue to do that. So it does mean there are actually deals. Um, but it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, see it in the same way in, in developed markets where sometimes you know, a company wants to raise money, they go to an investment bank, the investment bank goes to like 20 private equity funds, they run it, you know, a process, etc. You don't really have that. Um, and so you do have to work on actually creating like the deals that you want to do. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is the ecosystem in terms of education, in terms of incubating the deals, it, the whole ecosystem has to be ready or <laughs> um, taken to a certain point in order to allow this industry to mm -hmm. flourish and for the and for things to grow quite a bit. And when yeah. I think of the ecosystem, I think a major player of this is the government or regulation. Now, is private equity a very heavily regulated industry or is it not so much because it's literally private individuals that are doing it? Um, yeah. Or what would you say, what, what role does regulation play in your industry or world? Yeah, so private equity isn't like regulated by, so if you're, if you are, um, if your local fund, you know, established locally, yes, you know, there are certain um, parameters within which you need to operate, right? Um, but I think there isn't, um, there, you know, where, where the regulation comes in, I think, is what types of investments pension funds, for example, are allowed to make. So in, um, in other parts of the world, you know, a lot of the LPs and LPs are the investors into a private equity fund. So a lot of the LPs in, in most parts of the developed world are like, and they're like pension funds, they're US pension funds, endowment fund, university endowment funds. In, in Africa, um, there is, for most countries actually, there are um, limitations on what those pension funds can invest in. Um, and it, the regulation is really to help them manage the risk, et cetera. So I think private equity might be seen on the sort of riskier end of the scale. Um, so what you find is most of the pension funds end up investing in government bonds and just local equities. So that's one part of the sort of risk management. I think the second part is, and in a way, I guess you can see why this is the case. It's a, um, it's a you know, there are policies for pension funds to invest in the country. So if you're pan-African, private equity fund, your fund is not investing only in one country, it's invested in multiple countries. So sometimes pension funds are, are limited in terms of in their ability to invest in that kind of fund. But if you have a fund where they're invested in just one country and their country, 
and it's in the government's way so obviously keep capital locally and help develop industries locally so those are some of the regulations that i say that imp that would say impact pension funds um, and there's obviously regulation that then impacts the companies that you're invested in um, so in certain sectors like financial services telecoms even oil and gas any investment you do needs to be cleared by the regulator but that's not necessarily pe regulation it's just the regulation impacting the businesses that you're invested in so that's how i would say it impacted i think in terms of the the, the role of the government um look i do think it's it is an expanding what um local investors can do um and enabling them to do more within pe um and also just creating the structures that make you know, non-fixed income investments and non-sort of listed equity investments much more attractive to investors. I think that can really unlock capital flowing into um, sort of these private funds, be it VC funds or, or private equity funds that you see today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that's, uh, that's a very interesting point. I, I want to just change a little bit here and talk about maybe um, from a personal perspective, working in PE as opposed to the industry at large. What kind of person do you think... Um, would be successful or would thrive in the PE world? Is there a certain education or psychological makeup or experience or anything like that that would typically flourish in this sector? Or does it not really matter? There are history majors that just think a certain way that can come in here and do well. What's your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so, um, no, I don't think... Hmm. I, I, so look, the, the, if you look at most PE funds, there's the, 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 the path to get into PE is actually quite traditional, I would say, for the most part. I, I don't necessarily, I don't think that that is, is, um, is the rule per se. So most people have done investment banking and whatever you did before investment banking actually doesn't matter. Like you've done investment banking and then you come into PE, that's typically the path. Um, some people start out going to, you know, they do M&A um, or, you know, yeah, they work in sort of the corporate M&A team of an organization and then come into PE. Um, so I think it's, um, and so, so the, the first thing you do, be, so typically it's not, I don't think you, you, you don't often seem to see people graduate from university and go straight into private equity. Um, so there's something you do before. And I think what you do before is what kind of washes what your degree was in a way. It kind of covers it because what that first job does is it gives you the training, particularly from a technical perspective. So building models, thinking of, you know, what financial analysis you need to do, what kind of, you know, how do you read an income statement and how do you read all the other financial statements. So, so that's what that first job does because a lot of, most B firms are small. They're not like large investment banks. They, they wouldn't have like an extensive graduate training program, et cetera. So typically you kind of want people who come in and can hit the ground running. So if you take that um, as sort of the, the general path, I think what's important in being to be successful is um, a certain amount of just curiosity. Um, and it's, it's curiosity about companies, about deals, about why things are a certain way, right? And it's, it's pushing yourself to sort of see things maybe differently to what everyone else is seeing. And, you know, I think that requires a lot of, of reading, of understanding, of, of asking why, <laughs> you know, all the time. Um, so I think that's sort of the, and I, and I actually think that is inherent for any investor, actually, any type of investor, because if you have the same view as the rest of the market, then I, 
I don't know, how do you create value? How do you invest in something that, that, that creates value? Um, and so that having that sort of intellectual curiosity, I think is important. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the more you, you sort of grow within PEs, understanding, um, you know, like I mentioned, when you look at a deal, what is, what are the critical things in the deal and how do you, how do you parse out what is noise versus what are the three things that, you, that will make a deal successful and, and thinking through and being creative about how you analyze those things. Um, in our market specifically, there, you know, that there can be a lack of information on certain things. And so I think being creative as to how can you answer a question, you know, so for example, if there's a new product that you're about to launch, um, one of the questions you're going to have to answer is, uh, is this going to be something that people adopt? But if that product didn't exist before, how do you ask people that question? Um, and so, you, you know, you know, for example, one of the things you then need to do is, okay, is, are there similar products to this um, that people have adopted? And, you know, can I draw an, any analogies between both products that will help me get an answer on this new product that we're about to launch? So I think there's, um, there's some elements of just sort of, you know, being critical about what's important and finding ways to understand those points. Um, and then you sort of over time, you know, build the skill around your technical modeling, et cetera, and, and, and then negotiating um, transaction documents, et cetera. Um, but I think for me, the key is that intellectual curiosity, being sort of critical, being creative about your analysis, um, and, and just willing to work hard, I think. I think that's super important. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of uh, the criticisms of being an individual or even collectively in, in this PE ecosystem or world, would you say uh, these criticisms are, are, are unfounded? And by that, I mean, it's an elitist thing. You have to have gone to Harvard or Columbia Business School, or, you know, it's typically male and white dominated, or, you know, certain, you have to, you know, have a certain accent, you know, all these kinds of <laughs> um, proclivities or whatever it is, demarcations that sort of make it feel like it's an exclusive club. What, yeah. what, do you think those criticisms are fair and they need to be more inclusive of either women or women of color or whatever it is? Or what's your, your perception? Well, so my, my, my perception is going to be limited because I haven't done sort of USP or UKP, right? Um, now that being said, I do have friends who are women of color, who are men of color, who work in these industries. Um, and I do, I do think, you know, one thing I would say is, the reality is in any recruiting process, um, I, I do think there's generally a, a bias, right? Because, and, and, and I think a lot of that actually sometimes is subconscious because you, you, you get like a ton of resumes and before going through each of them, you're gonna have to find a filter that enables you to shortlist those resumes. And sometimes that, that first filter is what school did you go to, right? So that's, that's one. And I do think there is a bias in that, actually, that probably needs to be addressed. And I think with everything going on in, in the world today, I do think, you know, I'm seeing a lot more people being conscious of that and actually trying to figure out how they change that in their recruiting, recruitment process. So I think that's probably where the first bias happens. Then I think ultimately for each company, I think it's important to then recognize that when you get people through the door for that first interview, is making sure that you don't look for people that look like yourself. 
And the reality is I do think a lot of companies do that. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing because you look for people that look like yourself because you call it culture. You, you call it, this is the culture of the firm and we need someone who can fit into that culture. But I, but I think what's important is how do you, def, what, what are you defining as that culture, right? Um, because if the culture is you need people who are hardworking, smart, open, intellectually honest, well, they don't necessarily look like the same thing in every, in every situation. And so I think in defining that culture, right? And, and I, I think what happens is culture tends to be this fluffy thing. Like no one really knows what they're talking about when they say you fit into our culture. So I think, you, 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 I think there is some work that needs to be done in defining, okay, what is our culture? And then being able to see what that looks like in lots of different people, uh, women or people of color. So, you know, um, yeah, I do think there is, I, I think those are the subconscious biases that happen in recruiting. I don't think it's in just P alone. I think it happens across the board. Um, maybe P and finance actually can be exaggerated um, because people are really short on time. And so it's kind of, how can we sort of do things most effectively? And I don't know that most effectively ends up yielding the kind of diversity actually that you need to see in the industry. Yeah, no, those are excellent points. Uh, I think that's pretty much most of what we wanted to go through today. If, if there's one or two final messages that you'd like to leave with an audience that is interested to learn more about this industry or to get into it, what advice yeah. would you give to them? Um, I'll, I'll say just, um, you know, two things. Being, like I said, being interested in, in deals, right, in what's happening in the industry. I think there's um, there's a lot of, information out there. Um, I think one thing that is helpful is actually, you kind of need to be excited about why certain deals done and you know, what is, you know, even trying to decide for yourself, what could be the value creation plan and why this company, why did this fund invest in this business? I think spending a lot of time doing that um, and, and seeing all the different types of deals that can be done. If there's a particular sector that you're interested in, like just spend time within that sector and seeing the sorts of deals, who's buying what, who's selling what, and why did they make money? I mean, not everything is public, but there is some public information. Did they make money? Why did they make money? Um, I think that could get your juices really flowing around, around PE. And I think, you know, starting to develop that mindset and that thought process um, I do think when it comes to if you are interviewing for a PE job, it does come out um, that you're not just a sort of I can build great models, which is great. It's like I can I can think through what you know what could be an interesting deal to do and, and why. Um, because, like I said, because sometimes as a firm you'll take a contrarian view on a particular sector. Um, being able to dig into okay, why did that fund do that? Because clearly everybody else was going this way and they chose to go this way. I think that could be that could be quite insightful actually as to um, what makes PE interesting. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thank you so much for having me.